Let me open us in prayer. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you sent your son for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for living the life we failed to live, dying in our place, paying for our sins, and we worship and adore you as our risen Lord and King. We pray that you would open your hands to us today and through the presence and power of Holy Spirit, help us see what your word clearly says, help us love what you love, be devoted to the things you're devoted to. We pray that more and more people would turn their eyes toward you because you're graciously working in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this is our study on uh, God, his people, and the poor. And just to remind you, and, and Sheets over here, if you're just coming in, Sheets on that unattractive gray cart over there, the dark gray cart over there, go grab it. And um, super utilitarian, sorry, I'm a man. So I just grabbed the most utilitarian thing I could find and uh, threw it in here. So just, just, as, just as a reminder, the, the goal of this five study study, five studies over seven weeks is simply to understand what the Bible says about God and the poor and God and his people and the poor. That's the goal. We're not doing uh, practical solutions to poverty. That's really important. We're not talking about political views. Uh, and over these five studies, uh, frankly, I don't care what anyone's political views are. They that's not what we're talking about. We're looking at like, what does the Bible say about God and the poor, his people and the poor? That's the focus of the study. Um, and so hopefully it'll inspire you to think about, wow, since God cares about this so much, I'm sure I'm glad that our church does. And we have an office called the deacons that care about this and I might help you pray and, and continue to do good and important things, but you might also be inspired to do new good and important things based on this. So if you look at your study today, we're looking at the wisdom literature. So we are zooming at 40,000 feet over the wisdom literature. All right. And just as a review, and I really am going to fly today, so just be aware of that. If you're a note taker, get, get your, loosen up, loosen up. We're going to fly. Okay, just a quick review. What you, Maggie said, well, I always fly. So as Maggie says, things are going to be very normal today. Okay, uh, four key relationships. We're created for four key relationships. You were created for a relationship with God. For yourself, you were created to have a, a sober view of yourself, to see yourself as someone created with great dignity, a royal priest, and utter humility. You're a creature, not a creator, right? And so your relationship, you're created for a relationship with God, yourself, others. You may have noticed that makes life really complicated. And then with the rest of creation, all right? And so that's what, that, that's all, those are all good gifts. Those relationships where life is relational. And here's the bad news. We rebelled against God. So all those key relationships are shattered by human rebellion. And because humanity, male and female, because we're the upper management, we are creatures who are the upper management of the whole creation. Uh, the whole creation is twisted out of joint because of human rebellion. And every relationship is not the way it's supposed to be. So that's background. And from the Bible's perspective, from God's perspective, this is why poverty exists because of broken relationships. So think about it. 
Some people have a broken relationship themselves. They don't think they have any contributions to make. They see themselves as needy and incapable. And so they don't strive to do well. Other people idolize money and comfort and status. And when you worship those things, you're not generous. And so if your relationship with yourself and the creation, that's related to your, your relationship with God, right? But when God heals your relationship with him, it reframes your perspective on everything. Okay. So that's all background. Those things we said, the first two studies at the bottom of this, this cover sheet here, there's Psalm 68, four through six in the front. That was our memory verse a year ago, January. So you've all got it memorized. We're gonna look at it. It's right there for you. But the causes of poverty in some of the scripture we've looked at so far, um, in the prophetic, the prophetic literature emphasizes idolatry, rebellion, and systemic oppression. So we saw that, uh, and that was the second time we met. A lot of language about that. Um, wisdom literature um, emphasizes um, a lot of just righteousness and justice like we talked about last time. So we defined the Hebrew word tzedakah and the Hebrew word mishpat. And so righteousness, and we're going to see those words pop up again frequently in the Psalms. So tzedakah, the Hebrew word uh, tzedakah means uh, to do what is right in terms of all these relationships. That's what, that's what tzedakah is. Righteousness, essentially you could boil it down to loving God and loving your neighbor. It's right to honor God and it's right to honor your neighbor, okay? And so the 10 commandments are the best summary of loving God and loving your neighbor, right? You don't dishonor God and things attached to God. That's breaking the third commandment, right? To take the Yahweh's name in vain. Um, you, you, and you don't lie, you don't steal, you don't even long for things that don't belong to you. And so that's the 10 commandments are a great summary of loving God and loving your neighbor. Um, they forbid the negative thing and they, uh, what's, uh, assumed is, uh, desiring the positive thing in the 10 commandments. So that's all review, review flying here. Um, one thing that righteousness is doing what is right in every relationship Justice, one of the most important ways to define justice, Mishpat, is restoring righteousness. So sometimes justice is correcting things. Uh, justice is also giving each person their due. We talked about this last time. So when we think about serving the widow, we think of mercy, and that's certainly charity or mercy. But in the Old Testament, in the, in the scriptures, caring for the widow and the orphan is, is Mishpat, it's justice. Because the widow is due care because she's made in God's image. The fatherless is due care because the fatherless is made in God's image. So it's, it's, it's unrighteous and unjust to ignore the widow and the orphan. It's right and just to pour yourself out for the widow and the orphan. Does that make sense? So and sometimes in our language, we say, oh, let's do mercy ministry. Let's be, let's be charitable, good and good. But then it feels like it's optional. I might be merciful, I might be charitable, but I might not. But from God's perspective, to neglect the widow and the orphan is to do what is unrighteous and unjust. And to care for the widow and the orphan is to do righteousness and to do what is just because the widow is due familial care from the body. Does that make sense? All right, super, great. Hey, sheets over here, if you're coming in, please grab them. Okay, um, and then another way to think about how righteousness and justice work together, and they're often paired in the Old Testament, tzedakah and mishpat. The tzedek, 
right? The tzedakah, the righteous person doing righteousness. The tzaddik who does tzedakah, the righteous person doing righteousness. And uh, the one who judges, the one who keeps mishpat, when they're, they often appear together. And one way to talk about that is what God wants is the right use of power. Okay? So it's interesting. Maybe you've noticed this, like in the last five years, we're arguing over the word privilege. Have y'all noticed that? Guess what? I grew up in the church and I can remember these prayers. I bet most of you can too. Oh Lord, we thank you for our privileges. Raise your hand if you heard that prayer a hundred times in your life growing up. I, I bet I heard it a thousand. Oh Lord, we thank you for our many privileges. Help us steward them well. I mean, I, I heard that prayer my whole life. So all of a sudden now we're arguing over privileges, fighting over that. that we don't need to, right? There's one God, he made all things. He's very generous. If he gives us privileges, then we just want to honor him with it, right? Loving God and love your neighbor with whatever you have. That's just biblical righteousness. So to do right and to do what's just is just a, the right use of power, stewarding any resource. So that would include influence, wealth, positions, privileges. So a grandmother, right, who intercedes for her children, her grandchildren, right? That's right and just, right? That's exactly what a grandmother should do. You're, you're praying for your grandchildren. You're using your privileges, your position in Christ Jesus to shake the throat of heaven and say, hey, don't skip past my grandchildren. Remember your covenant faithfulness, right? So any position or privilege that you have, you just steward it to love God and love your neighbor. That's kind of a, the essence of righteousness and justice. Does that make sense? Okay, now I know that there are people in our culture that are using the word privileges to beat people up and misusing the word justice, okay? So do people misuse the word love ever? Are you gonna stop using the word love? You gonna stop telling your children you love them? Your grandchildren you love them? Your friends you love them? Please don't stop using the word love and don't be afraid of the word privilege just because someone uses it in wacky ways. Don't be afraid of that word. It's a wonderful word. And don't be afraid of the word justice. It's a very, very biblical word. We should be jealous for the words God has given us and we should use them in biblical and faithful ways. Does that make sense? Okay, good. All right, now, now we're gonna get into the wisdom literature. Let's fly. Okay, I was on study leave just a couple weeks ago, and I, I made a discovery I'd not seen before in the Psalter. I'm gonna share it with you today. I was super excited about it. So the Psalms is a collection of 150 Psalms. How many of you have noticed when you're reading through the Psalter, every now and then you get to like, it says book two, and you're like, Psalm 42 is the beginning of book two? What does this mean? How many of you noticed that there's five different places where you see book one, book two, book three, book four, book five? There are five sections to the 150 books of Psalms. So book one is Psalm 1 to 41. Book two is Psalm 42 to 89. <laughs> book three is Psalm 90 to 106. Book four is 107. I'm going to argue today that it ends at Psalm 145. Sorry, did I skip one? What did I skip? 1 to 41, that's the biggest. 42 to 89, 90 to 106, 107. Ah, that's it. What is it? 107. Yeah. 1, 2, 3, 4. Yes. 
Oh, sorry. But sorry, 90 to 106 is book four. That's it. 90 to 106 is book four. And then 107 to uh, 145, book five. So what I want you to see today is the last book in all five sections of the Psalter has a common theme. The last book in the, in the five books. So um, when were all these Psalms written? Some of them we know were written by David during certain times of his life. We can kind of pin it down. Some of them are written by people after David died. Some of them are written, uh, uh, there's actually some stuff that Moses wrote in the Song of Moses that reappears in the Psalter. So um, some, of the, some of the Psalms are written by the sons of Korah, which is kind of like the Rick Barnes of the ancient world, right? And, and they were written, this is really interesting, by the way, some of the individual laments or the individual saying, everything in my life hurts and nothing's the way it's supposed to be. If you read the title to the individual laments, it says it was taken to the choir director. Isn't that interesting? So the people of God corporately could identify with the person that was suffering. It's pretty interesting. Like, it's like the apostle Paul, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So anyway, so the Psalter was produced by a lot of people inspired by God, okay? And at some point, the Psalter was shaped into five books. Um, and it's just very interesting that uh, as the Psalter was being, um, so it would have been people that collected the 150 Psalms and put them in the book. But this, we're in the kind of place where we believe in inspiration. We think God had a hand in this. So I think it's just super interesting to see, think about how the, the Psalms as a whole were shaped so today we're going to look at the last one in those five books. Okay, so first of all, Psalm 41. So think about Psalm 1, the very beginning of the Psalter. Blessed is the man, right? The, the general blessing of the one that listens to God's word, who does what he says. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. That's the beginning, Psalm 1, of the whole book of Psalms. But then here's the end of book 1, Psalm 41, verse 1. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. I think that's pretty interesting. That's the first verse of the final book, the capstone book of book one. Blesses the one who considers the poor in the day of trouble, Yahweh delivers him, that person. So Psalm one begins with a general blessing. Those who listen to God's voice and do what God says, they love God's word, they avoid evildoers. They're like trees planted by streams of water. They bear their fruit in season. That's the general blessing for the one who listens to God's voice and does what God says and avoids evil paths. The end of book one blesses the one who cares for the poor. General blessing, right? If you care for the poor, that's, then you're walking in God's paths. You're doing the things that God's told you to do. Okay, um, and so here's the second book is Psalm 42 to 72, okay? And Psalm 72 is one of these real royal Davidic Psalms, but it's printed for you here. Uh, under Psalm 41, once, let me read it to you. Um, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal sons. This is very much a, a, a psalm about the royal line of David, David and his descendants after him. May he, the king of, of David and David's line, may he mishpat, may he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. What this means is, uh, the poor often got trampled and they, they didn't have the power to vend themselves. And so what the, the king was supposed to do is make sure that the law was applied to them equally, that they weren't taken advantage of in their position of weakness. Also, you weren't supposed to give them extra favor because they were poor, but also you were supposed to keep them from being oppressed. And so that's what goes on here. Verse three, 
Uh, let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. We don't want filthy money. We want righteous money, righteous wealth. And this is what the king should do, verse four. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. That's all doing mishpat. So Psalm 41.1 says the ideal person considers the poor. Psalm 72 says the ideal king considers the poor and defends the poor and the needy. Do you see the connection there? Psalm 41, the ideal person considers the poor. Psalm 72 tells us the ideal king cares for the poor. He's going to take care of the poor and the needy. And so the verses 12 and following is still talking about the king. In verse 8, we're told that he's going to rule from sea to sea. There's ultimately going to be a great king in the line of David who's pretty good at this, right? Psalm 72 anticipates the coming of Jesus. But what's the ideal king going to do in verse 12? He delivers the needy when he calls the poor in him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And how does he view the poor? And precious is their blood in his sight. So once again, that's the ideal king. The ideal person cares for the poor and the ideal king cares for the poor, all right? And then look, here's how book two ends. You can tell it's got a little capstone on it. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be, be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse are ended. So boop, little capstone right there. End of, end of, uh, end of book two, right? So now we've had two books ended. The, the general ideal person considers the poor and the ideal king, uh, part of what he does is righteous, righteousness and justice and defending the cause of the needy, lifting up the poor, right? It's all right there. So now that's the ideal person, the ideal king. Now look at Psalm 89. This is the end of book three. Okay, this is the conclusion to book three. You've said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build up your throne for all generations. Who said that? Yahweh himself, right? Yahweh entered into a covenant with David and his descendants forever. So, so this is, the, this is the, the voice of the king saying, that's what you've said, right? You're, you're, you're the one that lifts up this line. And then look at what the, the, the ideal person or king thinks about Yahweh himself. Verse 14, righteousness and justice, Zedekiah and Mishpat, are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness, that actually our word amen comes from that word for faithfulness there, go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Yahweh, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness, your tzedakah, are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor, our horn, our symbol of strength, is exalted. For our shield belongs to Yahweh, our king to the Holy One of Israel. What are we being seen? What are we seeing here? Why is the ideal person someone who cares about considering the poor? Why is the ideal king the kind of person that cares for the poor? Because Yahweh Himself is that kind of person, that kind of God, the ideal God, the real king, who's in who is in covenant with the King of Israel, is a king uh, who. Uh, his throne is established by righteousness and justice. Does that make sense? See the connection? 
The ideal person in Psalm 41 verse one cares about the needy because the ideal person is made in the image of God and so is the needy person. So the ideal person is imaging what God is like. The ideal king cares about the poor and the needy and lifts up the downtrodden because the ideal king is a representation of Yahweh himself, right? And of course, when the ideal king shows up and it is God's own son in the line of David, this is exactly how he lives his life, right? Right, exactly what he does. Okay, so now let's look at Psalm 90, sorry, Psalm 106. So book three is Psalm 90 through 106. So here's the third ending. No, sorry, fourth ending. Okay, Psalm 106, one through three. Praise Yahweh. By the way, what, in Hebrew, what, what you're, what, what, you, a lot of times our English translations it says, praise the Lord. In Hebrew, it's hallelujah. You ever heard hallelujah? <laughs> we sing it a lot on Easter, don't we? Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Yeah. Um, hallelujah is, hallel means to praise. Lu means, and, and hallel is, a, is an imperative here. It's a command. Praise, Lu means you plural or y'all. And Yah is Yahweh's name abbreviated. So my name is Robert, but most of you don't call me that, right? And so Yah is probably an, a diminutive of intimacy. Hallelujah. All of y'all praise Yah. That's what we're saying when we say hallelujah, it's a command. Corporate, all of y'all, praise y'all, okay? So that's, we're getting into that deep, into the Psalter. Praise y'all. Oh, give thanks to Yahweh for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of Yahweh or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. You see what we just did there? the general blessing for the person who does righteousness and justice who cares for the poor, the ideal person does that. The ideal king does that. Yahweh does that. Now we're back to the ideal person. They, do, they all do the same thing. There's a great consistency here, right? Blessed are they who observe mishpat, who do righteousness at all times, right? Uh, blessed are those who do mishpat, who, who correct the opposite of righteousness, who give the widows their due, who give the fatherless their due, who takes care of the sojourner and the poor. That's what mishpat means uh, all through the Old Testament. Okay, now, book five. This is the controversial part of our our thing. Uh, Here's what some of us think. Book five, I think the end of book five is Psalm 145 because Psalm 146, 147, 148, 149, and 150, the last five are all massively hallelujah psalms. They all begin with hallelujah and end with hallelujah, right? And they're very unique. And what I want to show you really quickly is Psalm 145, which I think is the end of book five, And then 146 and 147, the double beginning of the coda, the last five Psalms on the end, all have the same theme. It's very consistent. So Psalm five, sorry, Psalm 145, the end of book five. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever. Yahweh is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The kind of thing you get from, that's from Exodus 34. And it gets repeated frequently in the Old Testament after God's people worship the golden calf, right? And God spares them. Yahweh is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in stuff like Psalm 103. 
Yahweh is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your work shall give thanks to you, O Yahweh, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. So we're back to, back to the kingdom, kingdom psalm, but now we're not thinking about the earthly king, but the, the true king, the king of heaven and earth. Uh, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds, verse 12, and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Yahweh is faithful, amen, in all his words, and kind in all his works. Yahweh upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. So that's verse 14 of Psalm 145. Please circle it because we're going to understand a little more explicitly what, what's being referred to as those here who bowed down. The Hebrew word is chafaf. Sounds like falling down, doesn't it? All the kafafim, the kafafim. Those poor kafafim. Okay, it's just kind of fun to say Hebrew words sometimes. All right, verse 15. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Yahweh is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. So we have the same theme here. There's not, it doesn't sound like there's an explicit reference to the poor, but I'm about to show you that it is who the kafim, kafafim are. Um, but notice this. If this, if, if this is the end of the fifth book, Psalm 145, Yahweh is the generous king over his whole creation. And he does what is right. And to do what is generous is to be right and kind. Right? That's what we're being told about Yahweh. The true king, right? The true king who rules over all things, whose kingdom never ends, is right and generous and kind. It's his character. As we see as we go through the wisdom literature, when you're kind to all kinds of people, you're the most like God because that's what God is like. And here it's really, really open-handed. Yahweh upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you. You give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Yahweh is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Okay, so here's what I think. I think Psalm one, Psalms 156 through 150 are the coda the, the final crescendo of hallelujah, 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 okay? Uh, that's the last five psalms. And so look, look with me It's what's here in verse five of Psalm 146. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes, this is what God is like, who, who executes mishpat, justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Yahweh sets the prisoners free. Yahweh opens the eyes of the blind. This sounds like Isaiah 61, right? In Luke 4. And look at the very next verse. Yahweh lifts up those who are bowed down. The kafafim. Same group of people. Yahweh loves the righteous. Those who do these kinds of things. Yahweh watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Yahweh will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise Yahweh. Do you see how that pulls together all the themes we just looked at? And it, all, it pulls all together in the worship of Yahweh himself. 
the God of heaven and earth, who is the true king who rules over all things. He is the one who does righteousness and justice, tzedakah and mishpat. And what does he do? He takes care of the widow and the orphan and the sojourner, and he lifts up those who are, who are bound down. That's just who God is and what he's like. And if that's the most important thing you take from this five-week five study, that's great. If you walk away going, oh yes, the God that I love who loves me the maker of heaven and earth, that he lifts up the poor, that he, that he takes care of the widow and the orphan. If that's, if that's your number one conclusion, then that job, job well done. All right, that, I want you to conclude that with me, okay? All right, so I'm gonna fly. Uh, you look at Psalm 68, four through six on your own. We memorized that already last year. So I'm gonna go to Proverbs 14. This should make perfect sense after what we just saw in the Psalter. And I skipped Psalm, oh, sorry, let me back up. I apologize. Psalm 147, just so you don't miss it. Psalm 147. So I think this is the double beginning of the last five after Psalm 145 being the end of book five. Psalm 147, hallelujah, there it is. It's good to sing praises to our God. It's pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. Yahweh builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. Yahweh, verse six, lifts up the humble uh, this word here is the ananim, and, and the, this is, uh, the Hebrew here is the poor, the, the multiple poor. He cast the wicked to the ground, but look at verses 19. This is great. If you're the kind of person that likes to come to Bible study, okay, and you like to just get into the Bible, this is a great, two great verses for you. He declares his word to Jacob. He's not a mute God. He, he tells us what he wants us to know. His statutes and rules to Israel, mishpatim. That's what the word rules is there, okay? Does he want us to do mishpat, to do justice? Yes, and what he's given to Israel is his mishpatim. His rules principally about justice, okay? And he repeats it. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his mishpatim. Hallelujah, <laughs> isn't that great? So just look at Yahweh's perspective there. Yahweh rescued his people, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob from Egypt, where they lived under heavy oppression for a long time. He pulls them out of Egypt. He brings them to Mount, Zion, Mount Sinai, not Zion yet, Mount Sinai, right? And what does he say? Hey, I want you to, this is my mishpat. I want you to treat the sojourner really well for you know what it's like to be a sojourner for you were oppressed in Egypt. And so that just begins, he just begins to unfold that. And that's why you get gleaning laws so that those who are doing really well, they don't glean all the way out to the edge of the fields. They leave the boundaries so that their neighbors can come and work and earn food to feed their families. That's why you don't go through the field the second time so that your neighbors who are poor can come and work but get what they need to support their families. It dignifies the worker. This is not about handouts. Handouts are transactional. And what handouts often do is tell the, the wealthy, we're the, we're the givers and the poor, you're the receivers and I'll stay here and you'll stay there and I like it like that. But the gleaning law said, I have dignity, you have dignity, come and share in the bounty of what God's given me, but they work, they work, 
right? So they're dignified as those who, are, who contribute. Um, and so that's Mishpatim. And all that flows out of the heart of Yahweh and the way he related to his people when they were oppressed in Egypt, right? It's a major way for them to think about what it meant to be, to be rescued and redeemed by God's powerful hand. And now he just wants them to imitate him. Does that make big pictures? That makes sense, right? God has shown them great mercy and kindness, and he wants his people to imitate his mercy and his kindness in all of life in ways that are respectful of the people receiving the help, where God is, where God is honored and the one receiving the help is honored and my pride isn't fed and their shame isn't fed. That's a basic big picture of what righteousness and justice looks like if you kind of summarize it big picture in the Old Testament. Okay, now we'll go to Proverbs and I'm gonna whoop, whoop, whoop because what I wanna show you in Job is super fun. Also, kind of new insight for me. Okay, Proverbs 14, 31. This should not be confusing. Whoever oppresses takes advantage of a poor man insults his maker. Why is that true? The poor man is made in the image of God. And how you treat your neighbor reflects how you view God. But he who is generous to the needy honors him. He who is generous to the needy honors his maker. Right? If you want to insult God, abuse the poor. If you want to honor God, uh, treat the poor with dignity. Proverbs nineteen seventeen: whoever is generous to the poor lends to Yahweh. That's pretty great. <laughs> and he will repay him for his deed. So if you want some really secure investments, <laughs> right? Um, heaven's the best uh, Fort Knox there is. No rust. Okay, Proverbs 21, 13. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. So you see, once again, our relationship with God and ourselves and others are deeply connected. This is why in the New Testament, you just get this from Jesus and Paul and James, right? Very consistently, you can't say I love God or First John. You can't say I love God and I don't care about my neighbor. Like that just that doesn't work. It's not right. Okay, so now we're going to assume, oh, before we flip, flip Proverbs, the, who's the ideal, um, what's what we're looking for? Um, exemplar of Proverbs in the 31 chapters of Proverbs. Who's the ideal exemplar? The woman at the end. And what does Proverbs 31, 20 say about the Proverbs 31 woman? She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hand to the needy. There just really isn't a section of the wisdom literature where you can miss this theme. Now, here's what I didn't cover in here because I don't have to, okay? If you read through the Proverbs, does God like sloth or does he warn us against sloth? He warns us against sloth, right? I mean, there, there's, there's a plenty of that in, in, in Proverbs, right? Well, everyone in this room takes that for granted, Right? Did we all know that, that God doesn't, God doesn't like sloth. Go to the ant, you sluggard, right? Uh, the, the sluggard, he puts his hand in his dish. He won't even pull it back up and eat it, right? He starts a task, but doesn't finish it, right? So, you know, does the wisdom literature say, and Proverbs is the main place, does the, proverb, does the wisdom literature say that individuals are responsible for their lives? Absolutely, Right? But then when the wisdom literature comes around and says that God's people should relate to the poor, um, it doesn't say treat the righteous poor this way. 
And thankfully, God doesn't relate to us. God didn't send his son to die on the cross for the good people. I'd be in a ton of trouble, eternally condemned, right? So there you go, there's that. All right, now, so I wanna do, I wanna look at Job with you really quickly. How much time do I have? I got 20 minutes, we did it. Okay, so, so this to me is super exciting and this is the first time I've ever taught this and this is the perfect room to do it in. I can't wait. Okay, so just before I move in, Remind me to say this at the end of this. Job had a profound experience. He met God. Remember? That's how the book of Job ends. And we're going to see concretely that this transformed Job. I want you to see all the ways that it transformed. We're going to be really specific about it. But first, I want to show you that, remember verse 1 tells us that Job was a blameless man. He was righteous. We'll read that in a minute. But the, 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 one of the best pictures of Job as a righteous person is in Job 29. He's, he is set apart in the whole book of Job as humanly speaking, especially before he meets God, he's the paragon of righteousness and justice. He's an exemplar like the Proverbs 31 woman. Okay, Job is an exemplar, okay? Verse one, he was blameless and upright, man who feared God and turned away from evil. But now look at ch- verse chapter 29, top of this uh, last page here. Job says, when I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, when the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw, it approved. So I, just, I skipped some stuff there. I just wanted you to see, that's verse 7 and 11. It's a long speech where, where Job says, when I went out, the old men sat down and listened, and the, the, and the young men paid attention. I had a lot of public honor. P- people knew Job was like the E.F. Hutton of the ancient world. Remember that commercial? Some of y'all know. Okay, good. Um, okay. Why? Look at look, this. This is ancient poetry, but this is, and the narrator tells us that Job was upright, blameless and upright. He feared God and turned away from evil. So here's, here's sort of the speech about how that looked in his life. Because, verse 12, why did people give him so much respect in the gate? because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had no pity on him. It's exactly what we just saw in the Psalms. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. This is who Job was, right? He he, he was so engaged in the widow's life that she went from lamenting her emptiness and sorrow to her heart singing for joy. She had a son in the world named Job, who wasn't her real son, but treated her like he was. Okay, look at what he says, verse 14. This is how you understand what Mishpat and Tzedakah is. I put on Tzedakah, righteousness, and it clothed me. My Mishpat was like a robe and a turban. Why? I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. You see what that means, right? I guided the blind person myself. I went and, and, and got what the lame person needed. I, I expended myself for the sake of the blind and the lame. I was a father to the needy and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. Okay, what that means is there's someone complaining about justice. This guy's a stranger, 
agur, okay? But I, I searched it out. Even though this person was a stranger, I went and investigated the case. Did this stranger have a, a real case? And if so, I went and fought for him. Look at verse 17. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. I went and liberated the, the person who was being oppressed and I opposed the oppression and let the poor person being oppressed go free. So that, that's what it means for Job to be invested in Tzedakah and Mishpat, okay? So now let's back up and I just want you to see the beginning and end of the book of Job. So here's Job one. Oh, by the way, sorry, any questions about, is that pretty clear what we just read about Job? Very consistent with the ideal person, the ideal king and God himself, right? And that's what's being described there. Okay, here's the beginning of the book of Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. I think the words here are Tamim and Tzadik, Tzedekah. One who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters, he possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and five female donkeys, and very many servants. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So he was uh, blameless and upright, feared God, turned away from evil and interceded for others. Right? And he was richly, richly blessed. Well, what happens in the book of Job? It's not printed for us here. He loses everything, right? Everything's taken away and it goes in stages and it gets, he loses his, his belongings, his family. Then he starts, you know, th then he gets afflicted himself personally. And then his wife tells him to curse God. And then his friends tell him to curse God. And then some self-righteous friends come and say, it's just because you're a wicked person. And you, you think you're great, but clearly you're not great because you're suffering a lot. And we know that you, if you were as good as we thought you were, that you would be blessed and not suffering. And so the book of Job is just blowing up those calculations for one thing. One of the, one, a central point in the book of Job is God blesses who he wants to bless. And you can't assume the poor person is wicked and you can't assume the wealthy person is holy because it doesn't always work like that because the world's broken and things are not the way they're supposed to be, okay? But then what's the climax of the book of Job? We're gonna read the denouement, but the climax is when God shows up right? God shows up and questions the questioner, right? Remember that? God shows up. Who is this who darkens my counsel? Who utters words without knowledge? Why don't you stand up and let, let's talk about it right now. <laughs> and then he's like, well, were you, Hey, by the way, you've got a lot of questions for me, Job. Were you there when I, and you get this unbelievable rich creational poetry of all that God did, that all that he brought into existence. And it's, this is really wonderful. So if you haven't read Job 38 and 39 for a while, just go read it. It's, it's wonderful, rich stuff. But then after 
Job and God. What's interesting too, at the beginning of Job, he's interceding for people. At the end of the book, he's interceding for people, right? God comes to Job's friends and, and says, um, it's, well, that's another, that's another lesson. We'll do that today. But here, here's how the thing ends. Here's how the book of Job ends. I want you to read the, the very end of me. This is after, this is the narrator kind of closing the book out. And I want you to tell me the contrast you see from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. Because he experienced God's presence in a very powerful way and it changed him. What we're gonna see here in the scriptures is the sanctification of his righteousness. So let's see, see what you pick up on. And Yahweh restored the fortunes of Job, 42.10. When he had prayed for his friends, Job's an intercessor at the beginning and the end. And Yahweh gave Job twice as much as he had before. Part of what Yahweh was saying is this, this was never about who deserved anything. Yahweh opens his hand and gives whatever he wants to give. So go read 1 Timothy 6 later. It's awesome. God gives us everything uh, that he has to give for us to enjoy. Boop, it's wonderful biblical truth. Then, then came to him, those came to Job, all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. His brothers and his sisters, remember he lost his children, he lost his wife. His brothers and his sisters came and ate with him and who else came and ate with him in his house? What does it say right there? All who had known him before, who would that have included? Whose heart did he make sing? Who did he feed? Who was he eyes for? Yeah, so all, so all who knew him before came to his house. That's really interesting, isn't it? So it's this really beautiful, rich party of all kinds of people and they showed him sympathy and comforted him. In Job 29, all the care is going from Job to others. But now Job has met God and now he's receiving mercy. Mature saints can give and receive. And that's a really important question to kind of do a little heart check. Like, you know, like when you check the oil, stick the stick in there and see, you know, right? It's really good to be generous and kind. But also, can you receive? Can people do kindness for you and can your heart receive it? Because the, 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 when in chapter 29, Job is eyes for the blind and feet for the lame and making the widow's heart sing. But now everyone's gathering his house and they're giving him gifts. So all who had known him before, they all came and ate bread with him in his house and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil, all the hardship that Yahweh had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. So now he's receiving gifts. Now, so there's a little shift there. Now, now I'm gonna read this last paragraph and I want you to compare it to the one above about the beginning of his life and see the differences you see. And Yahweh blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning 
and he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. So those numbers are doubled from up above. So that's the simple part, right? Because we're told twice, he made him twice as rich as he was before. But I want you to see the other differences. Here's, this is unique. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter, Jemima, and the name of the second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapuch. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. What are the biggest profound differences between the first paragraph of Job and this last paragraph of Job? What are some, what's missing? That's right. That's right. So seven sons and three daughters, both times. That's right. That's the same. What's missing from the first paragraph that's not in the last paragraph? Well, that's, that's an addition. You're right. So there's, there's something new that we're going to do in just a minute, Barbara. Right. But, so, but there's something that is in the first paragraph. That's not at the end. He, he had a ton of servants at the front, but after he's met God, he doesn't, they don't list any servants. That's really interesting, isn't it? He's doubling everything. He had the same number of sons, the same number of daughters, and everything's doubled, but he used to have a lot of servants. There are no servants mentioned at the end. It's like he's had this powerful experience with God and things are a lot more even on the human level than he used to see. Because compared to God, we're all just really, really tiny. Now, what's the addition? So that's the subtraction. There are no servants, lots at the beginning, none at the end. But then what's the addition at the end? You want to repeat it, Barbara? Honors the daughters. Okay, this, I just saw this recently. Okay, in the ancient world, this is crazy anti-status quo. There are no women other than queens in the ancient world who received property. And Job's had this unbelievable experience of God. And on the back end, you're, you're told in the front, seven sons and three daughters both times, but their daughters are named at the end of the book. That seems pretty intentional. And they receive an inheritance from their father along with their brothers. In the ancient world, this is just completely crazy. What's happened? Job has met God personally and his view of how you relate to people has become much more even. He's not constrained by his cultural boundaries. He's God's man. Does that make sense? His cultural stuff that he just took for granted his whole life has been melted away. He's met God and he's God's man. And he doesn't need the culture to tell him what's good and right anymore. He's been in God's presence. You see that? And so he used to have a lot of servants. Now he doesn't have servants. That doesn't mean we can't pay people to clean our houses. That's actually good. People need good work and they need to be paid for it. So that's, don't misunderstand me. What he's, but what he's saying here is there's, there's this, oh, oh, there's an amazing leveling of Job's view of himself vis-a-vis others. He was doing tzedakah and mishpat. He was taking care of the widow and the poor and uh, the fatherless. But now it's very even. He's also receiving from them. He had seven sons and three daughters, but now the three daughters are named. The sons aren't named. 
and the daughters get an inheritance along with the sons. I, can't, I just can't tell you in the ancient world how radical that is, right? It's, it's, I mean, there's just nothing like it in the ancient world. But he's been in God's presence. So people who he's formally seen as maybe second-class citizens, he can't view anyone else like that anymore because everyone around him is made in God's image. And no, there's no more top-tier, second-tier, third-tier. That is gone. Why? He's had a profound experience of God's presence. Do you see that? And so he's changed. He's changed by the grace of God and the presence of God, the generosity of God, the wisdom of God, the overwhelming awesomeness of God has changed him in such a way that now he sees we're all just really, really, really little people. And since we're all made in God's image, there are no little people. And that's just opened him up in some really profound ways. I have, I, that both these things, maybe because God wants us to be studying this together, both these things, the shaping of the Psalter and the, 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 the beginning end of Job are new insights to me within the last month. Somebody was generous to Chrissy and me and said, yes, go, go to our lake cabin and have some quiet study time. And that generosity is overflowing to us today. I couldn't believe it when I saw this in the Psalter. It's like, there it is. God really cares about this. And then when I looked at the book of Job at the beginning, of the end, I just couldn't believe it, how, how rich it is. So here's how I want to close today. I have two and a half minutes. Don't forget your homework on the back, on the back page. We're gonna, next week, we're going to look at our Savior, his life and his teaching. So you got homework. We won't necessarily read all those passages, but it'll help you to read them all. Okay. So don't forget that. But here's how I'm gonna pray for us before you have your lunch and share together. If talk about caring for the poor, uh, doing righteousness and justice, things like that, if that kind of talk makes you nervous, it makes everybody nervous. And, th and these kind of things from the Bible are, are sometimes misused and spoken about in unhealthy ways. But one, one way to deal with that personally, right, is to ask myself, am I drawing near to God himself? Am I by faith drawing near to God? And is, and is my heart being reoriented to God's heart because by faith through God's promised grace, not through like some practices, right? but because God has, the curtain between us and God's been ripped from top to bottom. And I have perfect access to God in Christ Jesus, who is my perfect righteousness, who did all God's perfect justice, and I failed every day of my life. And Jesus is my salvation. He is my forgiveness. He is my righteousness. And because I have this perfect access to the throne of God in him, am I drawing near to God? And I think if I will, by faith in God's promised grace, draw near to God, a lot of these questions just get melted away. Should I care for people who are suffering? It's a no-brainer. Should I pour myself out for people who are struggling, who are suffering? In God's presence, it's just a no-brainer. And, and really, the problem isn't the brain. 
And so I'll close in prayer. The real issue is where we are in our hearts and are we drawn near to God? Oh, Father in heaven, help us see your beautiful generosity and grace and mercy. And because of your salvation and your great love for us, make us those who love you more and more and love your ways and want to walk in your ways with increasing swiftness and loyalty because your grace is so good. We thank you for your forgiveness. We crucify in your presence our views of you and ourselves and others that don't honor you and don't bless the poor. Since we're united to Christ, would you resurrect for us soft hearts, a longing to be loyal to you as your people and give us confidence to draw near to you in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, y'all have a good lunch. I've been smelling it all morning. I don't know what it is, but it made me hungry. <laughs>